continue our study of authority, I thought it good to determine how to understand God's will and we, whenever we're reading what it is that he has to say. So how do we understand what we're reading? When Paul read that passage earlier, if you notice the eunuch said how, he was asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless some man guide me? We can learn a few things about understanding. If you've ever read a passage of Scripture and you're wondering, what does that mean? And you've ever scratched your head, then you're not alone. If you've ever read a passage and you thought you understood it, and then later as you get to looking at it, well, you know, I don't think I really understood that very well. You're not alone on that either. This is why when we read, we need to have some certain uh, aspects of learning to figure out, are there some things that could help us so that we can have a better understanding, so that we can rightly divide the Word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15. Some of your translations there would say to cut it straight or to, to handle it accurately. We do need to handle God's Word with care. We, do, we need to recognize that there are some who twist God's Word. We could do that, and we need to be careful about that. We're dealing with God's Word. We don't need to just make it say whatever we want it to say. But one of the things that we can do when we're trying to understand God's Word, when we're reading it, is first read it. Now, it seems like overly stating the obvious here, but... You know, it's not like it happens by osmosis, put it up against my head, and all of a sudden, oh, I understand now. You know, sometimes people think that, make too much about the, the cover or the pages. or It's not the ink that's holy, you see. It's the words and the meaning behind them that are the sacred words of God that we need to handle carefully. And the only way we're going to learn that is simply by... Uh, we're going to have to read it. Jesus often said, have you not read? Or did you never read in the Scriptures? One sure way that you will not understand God's Word is don't touch it, leave it alone, ignore it, don't read it, and then you're not going to understand it very well. Uh, you're not going to have a, the best understanding by watching movies. Somebody said, well, I saw the movie. You know, Some of those movies are not a very good representation and oftentimes when you, I get frustrated when you're watching some movies because I'm saying, did you not read the script? You know, if you're going to do an accurate representation of our Lord and the people and the circumstances behind it, it would be nice if they could actually know what was actually said and, and represent that accurately. But they take artistic license, as you know. So you can't trust that. But you do need to read it. Sometimes people are intimidated by reading because they don't know where to start or they don't know uh, a lot about it and they find some things difficult, so they end up just closing it. That, that's not going to help by doing that and being intimidated. You, you're not going to learn by doing that. You're going to have to try. You're going to have to open it up. To give you an illustration, there was an attorney who sent 15 letters to his clients 
who had all owed him a bill, but they had not paid. He decided, I'm going to send all 15 this letter and tell them I'm forgiving their bill. Well, 14 of the 15 letters returned back to him unopened. I suppose those 14 were afraid. This is from an attorney. Uh Uh-oh, I don't even want to read this, so return to sender. And they didn't even open it. And so they missed the good news of what was presented to them, that they were forgiven of this debt, so they didn't even get to hear it. But that wouldn't that be sad that we've got this treasure that's given to us by God, God's will that He's trying to give to us, and we don't even open it up and see. We'd certainly be missing out. But you need to do you do need to read God's word. Secondly, when you read, you need to have a good attitude about it. Because if if you're if you are looking to find fault or you're looking for some inaccuracy and that's your aim, well, that's going to be apparent in how you read it. If you're reading it with your own bias, trying to prove yourself right. Let's, somebody said something that bothered me, so I'm going to look in here and I'm going to find some way and I'm going to prove them wrong. That's probably, well, guess what's going to happen? I'm, I'm going to find some verse. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one makes my point, And what I may very end up doing is twist that verse to say something that it really didn't mean because I found something that I'm going to use against you or somebody else. I've got to be a little bit careful about that, that I'm not using it in a wrong way. I need to have the right attitude if, if I'm if I'm looking at it to try to say, okay, somebody said I was wrong about something, and so I go in here to try to justify myself, I want to make myself not feel so guilty, so I'll go through here and I'll find a verse that makes me feel better about the thing that I'm doing. I'm, I'm probably going to be able to find something that I can twist and make it say what I want it to say. So I've got to be careful about that. In Ezra chapter 7 in verse 10... Here we see a good example of the kind of attitude we need to have when we're reading God's Word. Ezra 7 and verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of God of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. What a good example. Could we say that about ourselves, that when I am... Am I preparing my heart that I really want to know what God's Word has to say? I'm not just trying to do it to impress others. I'm not just doing it so I can make people feel like I know some things and I can quote some scriptures and they will look at me and and respect my knowledge and think that I know something. Or is it that I really want to please God above all else and I want to know what His will is for me and I want to please Him in every way, to seek His Word, and not just to know it for trivia's sake, but to do it, because I'm ready. Whatever He says, I want to do it. Now, you remember when Moses had given the law that the children of Israel had said the words, all that the Lord has said we will do. They said those words. Those are good words to say, if you mean them. Now, we learned that They didn't really do that. They said that, but they didn't do it. And then later those words are said by some others, and I I believe it was more genuine. But when we 
decide, yes, I want to seek God's Word. And I'm ready to do it. And I don't want to just do some of it. I don't want to just do the parts that I like, the parts that I'm comfortable with. I want to do all of it. Even the the commandments that are hard. And then teach it. Notice the order there in Ezra 7.10. He wants to do it and teach it. In that order. Sometimes we get that flipped around. I want to teach it first. And then, and, then I'm, and then do it. But that's a little backwards, isn't it? Notice the order of Ezra. He's going, to, he's going to do it and teach it. And he's not just doing it for himself, but he, he believes in the power of this so much that, yes, he wants others to do it as well. He's not saying do as I say and not as I do. He's doing and practicing what he's preaching. And that's a good example. Look at John chapter 7. One thing that we need to do whenever we're reading it, we need to be ready to obey it. I believe that will help our understanding. You might say, well, what has that got to do with helping you understand? Well, there's a big difference, huge difference, between the person who's reading this for one purpose, maybe so they can prove somebody wrong, and the person who's reading it because they're ready to obey listening for his orders, ready to obey as we sing. But in John chapter 7 and verse 17, listen to what Jesus said here. John seven seventeen. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You know, what bearing does it have on a person who has an obedient heart whether or not they're going to understand God's will? A person who is stubborn in their heart and rebellious in their heart when they're reading, it might affect their understanding. But if I really want to know and I'm ready to do it, it it just goes and stands, uh, it makes sense that I'm going have a better chance of understanding God's will if I'm ready to do it. Another thing that I need to do is I need to know who is doing the speaking when I'm looking at a passage. It's very important because there are some speeches in the Word of God that are not God speaking. Sometimes the speeches are even the devil himself. In Genesis 2... In verse 15, God says that there was a tree for them not to eat of, and the day they eat of it, they will die. But then you look at Genesis 3 in verse 4 and notice that the devil, or Satan, the serpent, is speaking to Eve. And he asks her, has God said? And she says what God says, so she understood what God said, but then he says, the serpent says in Genesis 3, in verse 4, the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now, if you minus off one part of that, and it says, Ye shall not surely die, and you took that out of context, it says right there in the Bible, Ye shall not surely die. That's in the Bible. Well, that wouldn't make any sense to just say it like that. The devil's saying that. So understand. Uh, oftentimes people will read a, a, a passage 
and not observe who's talking. In Job chapter 2 and verse 9, here's another example. Job had been stricken by Satan. God allowed Satan to take away some things from him, including his children, his wealth, and his health. And Job's wife is having a hard time understanding why Job is still trying to live right if that's what he gets. And yet Job is maintaining his honesty and integrity before God, and he's still living right. He's not cursing God. He's not blaming God. He didn't sin with his lips. And Job's wife is having a hard time understanding that. And so she makes the point in Job 2 and verse 9. She says, why do you maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. If somebody didn't recognize this as a woman who is in pain, dealing with loss and is struggling with that, and she's speaking out of character at this time. And even Job says that. You're talking like the foolish woman, uh, women, as if to say this is not the way you normally speak or whether you're supposed to speak. But if you just read that, curse God and die, you would not have a very good understanding of that. That's very simplified example. Hopefully you get the point on that. You've got to understand that there are some things that are spoken in Scripture that sometimes is just a narrative of the history of the people. And it's not always telling you in every case, the people did this and that was wrong. Or this guy did this and this was right. Now, sometimes it does that. But other times, it leaves it up to you to determine that. It's, it's counting on your basic uh, common sense and logic as you're reading it to sort through whether their sayings and actions are right. When you're reading, for example, of Lot leaving Sodom, and in and, and that process, what he does with his daughters, and if you're disturbed thinking, how could he do that? Is this okay? This is in the Bible what he's doing. Well, I think it's allowing you to realize, okay, yeah, this is not right to offer your daughters in place of uh, angels to do what those men were going to do. If you're familiar with that context, you know what I'm speaking of. Or when it talks about later what the daughters did with Lot after they came out, it's not saying that to say, well, here's a case of a man who was righteous. He is referred to as a righteous man, but he did this. It's not an endorsement of every decision and everything that he said was, was good and right. It's leaving it up to you to decide that. Obviously, those things were not right for the daughters to do. So... You have to observe who's doing the talking. In that narrative, Moses is giving a history of the heritage of how they became known as a people and where the lineage flowed, and he's given a brief history of the people involved in there and some of the things they did, that God chose them in spite of some of their flaws that was related to that. You've got to understand that. So know who's doing the speaking. When you think about that, who, who's doing the speaking, it's very important. And, you, and secondly, you need to know who's being spoken to. That's also important. 
Some instructions in the Word of God are not given to every person. They're given specifically to some individuals, not everyone. For example, when God told Noah, build an ark, he wasn't telling you and I to build an ark. That was an instruction given to him. When God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him, he's not saying that for every father they need to do that, or even every person. He's not saying to every person, take off your shoes, you're the place you're standing is holy ground. Uh, he's not telling every person, go and tell Pharaoh. He's not, okay, Jesus told the apostles... In, in Acts chapter 1, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. You can also see in Luke chapter 24, in the latter part of that uh, context, he, he is another case where he's telling them, wait in Jerusalem. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and he's telling them, after I'm gone, you need to wait in Jerusalem. You're going to receive the power of God, and, and I'm going to send another comforter to you, and they will be endued with power from on high the Holy Spirit. Well, when he tells his apostles, wait in Jerusalem, is he telling you and I to wait in Jerusalem? Do we need to stop what we're doing right now, and do we need to go over to Jerusalem, hop on a plane, or however we need to get there, and just wait in Jerusalem? Well, that would be pretty silly, because that instruction was not given to you and I. That instruction was given to them for a specific purpose. So we understand that. And, and why I bring this up is, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, I want, I want to notice something with you. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, sometimes people will go to the Old Testament and they will take an instruction that was given to the Hebrews and they'll come over and superimpose that on us today when we're under a different covenant. I think it is wrong to go into the Old Testament and pick a command that was for them and then try to say that's what we must do today. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, notice in verse 1, Moses called all Israel. No, who's doing the speaking? Moses. Who's he speaking to? Israel. And said unto them, Hear, O Israel the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are all of us here alive this day. That covenant that he made was not made before them. God didn't make that exact covenant with Adam and with Noah, who were before the law. Now, somebody, I, I, I can picture somebody saying, raising an objection, well, Andy, are there some things that are contained in the Old Covenant after God gave it to Moses that are similar to some of the commandments that or some things we see being done before the law was given? Yes. For example... Noah made sacrifices after they got off the ark. They were to have two, uh, a male and a female of each of the unclean animals, but they were to have seven of the clean, a pair 
uh, you have three pairs, and then there's an extra. There's a seventh. What's the seventh for? Well, they were to sacrifice the seventh. Well, and someone might say, well, there, there's, there's a mention of clean and unclean animals before the law was given. When you go over into the law in Leviticus chapter 11, you see a distinction between clean and unclean animals. So they're trying to reconcile, was there some understanding of something that was clean and unclean before the law was given? Well, evidently, some understanding. But does that mean that that was bound upon all people for all times? I don't think so. And if you look early on in the book of Genesis, you see that you know while they were in the garden, God gave them every green herb as food. But then after they came out of the ark, there's a mention of eating a meat. Uh, not all distinctions were made at all times, but there is an overlap of some principles for... God also gave to Noah the principle of not eating blood, okay? Because life is in the blood. So whenever they ate an animal that had blood in it, what they were to do is to pour the blood out before they prepare the meat in order to eat it. Because life is in the blood, don't eat the blood. Well, that principle was given to Noah... Okay. Later, that's mentioned in the covenant of Moses. That is also repeated in the new covenant in Acts chapter 15, that whenever they were trying to determine what parts of the old law should we be binding today and not, because there were some under the new covenant who were saying, you've got to be circumcised because the law of Moses said you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So we've got to be circumcised to be saved. That's what some were doing. Well, they came to real, recognize, no, that is an Old Testament command. That's not bound upon everyone today. So they sent out letters to, to, to everyone saying, let's not burden the Gentiles any further and put upon them any more commands that what are given under our covenant. So no, we're not commanded to be circumcised today. But yet he did say in that context to tell them to abstain from fornication, to abstain from things that are strangled, and from blood. So those principles are still applied. So how do you determine which is which? Well, if a commandment is given in the Old Covenant, well, that was to the Israelites. If, in order for it to be bound today, you've got to find it in the New Covenant or else it's not bound on us today so if someone wants to try to go to the old testament to try to bind a principle notice if you would go to galatians chapter 5 and understand this principle that to be consistent if you go to the old testament to bind a principle you have to bind it all if you want to be consistent galatians chapter 5 he talks about the Old Covenant as a yoke of bondage in verse 1. He talks about that Christ will profit you nothing if you're circumcised. But if you want to bind that, you, you're in debt to do the whole law. If you're going to bind that one point, you better do it all to be consistent. So don't be picking and choosing. This is what people do. They go to the Old Law and they find one commandment. And say, well, see, it says that in the Old Testament. 
be careful about that because that was given to the Israelites until Jesus came. Now we're under the new covenant. So if, if it's going to be bound today, you're going to have to find it in the new covenant or else you're simply reading that to learn what he was telling them and learn the principles behind it, but not to be bound today. So know who is doing the speaking, know who he's speaking to. The old covenant was given was speaking to the Israelites. The new covenant is for all people. Okay? But it's also good even in the new covenant to observe who's doing the talking and who he's talking to. Again, there are some instructions that are given to husbands, some instructions that are given to wives, some instructions to elders, some to deacons, some to the deacons' wives, some to all people, some to slaves, some to slave masters. You get the point. So we need to observe who's talking, who they're talking to, because that's important to help us in our understanding. We also need to know the purpose behind a statement. Some things were said for a reason, and if you didn't understand that reason, you're going to get really confused about how to apply that to yourself. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, notice here, this is a verse that is often used as a way to discourage someone from being baptized. But when they do that, they don't really understand and observe the purpose behind the statement. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 14. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. So somebody says baptism is not important for salvation. They'll go to this verse and say, See, Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize some of you. And if you just walked away and you said, Okay, well, Paul's glad that some were not baptized, that he did not baptize some, you would miss the point. You have to ask yourself, why did he say that? Uh, here's, here's another point. When he says, uh, verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize. Sometimes people say, well, Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize. So therefore, it's not our purpose to baptize. So baptism is not necessary for salvation. Well, you're really going to miss the point if you, if you interpret it like that. Why did he say that? Well, the purpose behind the statement is because some were going around saying, I was baptized by Paul. And other people were going around saying, I was baptized by Peter. And other people were saying, I was baptized by Apollos. And they were latching on and elevating these men who baptized them as if that was an important matter. It's not really so much important about who baptized them because we weren't... Uh, those men that baptized us were not crucified for us. Okay? And we were not baptized into their name. So therefore, that's why he's saying this though. Because some were saying, verse 15, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. That's, that's why he's making the statement. He's not saying it's not important to be baptized. You've got to re re remember too that Paul in other places taught baptism. Paul himself was baptized. Why was Paul baptized? Well, you can read in Acts chapter 9 and in Acts chapter 22, 
in those accounts where Paul talks about his, uh, where, where Luke records where Paul was baptized. But then in Acts 22, Paul tells why he was baptized. He, this is his account of his own conversion. And he says that Ananias came to me and said, Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22 and verse 16. That was Paul's defense of his conversion of why he changed from being a persecutor to now believing in the resurrection of Christ. And he tells about his own conversion and how he was baptized and why he was baptized. Now you're going to tell me that because Paul is writing a letter to one group of people that he's now saying baptism is not important? No, he was baptized for the remission of sins. So when I'm reading this about what Paul is saying, I have to take that into account. Paul's not saying, don't be baptized. He's just saying, I'm glad I didn't baptize you so that you go around saying and bragging that I'm the one that baptized you. So it's real important to know the purpose behind a statement. God doesn't want us dividing up into groups and claiming to be followers of these men. He wants us to be converted to Christ and be a Christian and not be divided by following one man over another. If Paul later says to the Corinthians that I and Apollos are one, we're on the same team. I plant, Paul waters, or Apollos watered, God gave the increase. We're all working together for a common goal. But they were divided into these groups, having like a competition thing going. We've got to be careful about that. So it's real important to know why a statement is made or else we're going to be confused. Another key to understanding is we need to know the setting or the context. Just like what we just did. Read the verses before and the verses after it and know the surrounding setting. If you only latch on one verse and you exclude the rest, you're going to get real confused about that. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said... Judge not that you be not judged. A lot of people read that and then they stop and they don't read anything else. And if you do that, you're going, to re- you're going to miss it. That later he says, if you've got a beam in your own eye and you're trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye, how are you going to be able to do that? So he's talking about judging someone else while you are guilty of something. He says, first, get the beam out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to get the speck out of your brother's eye. So if you look at the context, there's a proper time and place to approach your brother about his fault. He he doesn't say never, but he means after you've looked inward and you've cleaned up your own backyard, so to speak, after you've made correction of yourself, Similarly, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul said, If a brother is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, remembering yourself, lest you're also tempted. And that's kind of the same principle. He's not saying, if your brother sins, don't ever say a word to him because that's judging. You're not ever supposed to judge. No, the real point is, don't judge hypocritically and don't judge without looking at yourself first. Be humble about it. Consider yourself. Be gentle. 
those are all principles that you need to have whenever you're correcting another. He's not saying never correct. If he was saying that, Jesus would be uh, guilty of judging himself because he judged. He has the right to judge. He is he's Lord. Uh, Paul would be guilty of judging. The apostles, all every teacher would be guilty of judging if that's what was meant in Matthew 7 every time they pointed out a sin or rebuked someone. He's not saying it's always wrong to rebuke someone or tell somebody you're wrong. He's not saying it's wrong to tell someone that they are in danger if they do something. Peter himself told Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, he said, your heart's not right in the sight of God. But I could see somebody saying, oh, that sounds like judging. Well, maybe so. But it's not the kind of judging that Jesus was warning against. Peter's judging, but in a right way. When he says, you need to repent and pray that perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. There is a right in time and a way to say those things. So you've got to observe the setting or else you're going to be confused. John chapter 6 and verse 44 is a verse that's often taken out of context. It says that no man can come to God ex- except God draw him. Well, if you read that and you stop right there, John six forty-four, and you don't read anything else, you might say, well, how does God draw me? Well, I, they might think of some better felt than told experience or some feeling, some spiritual tug of some sort. That's how God draws you. What the next verse says, if you hear and learn of the Father and you're taught, okay, that's how you're drawn. That's how you come to the Father. Whenever you hear, you learn, and you're taught. That's, that's the very next verse. It's very important. How does God draw us? By the Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. When I learn about God and I learn about what He's done and I learn of His will for me, that draws me to Him. I, 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 I'm endeared to the author of this great work because when I see what He's done for me. That's how he draws me. It's not like I'm just going to be off in the woods one day and then I'm just going to get some feeling. Lightning's going to strike me and, and I'm going to be drawn to the Lord. Uh, there's an old classic movie, Sergeant York. Some of you may have watched that where he's like trying to wrestle between a decision and he's up one, one day, he's like in a tree and then there's like lightning strikes and... The, the Bible opens up the page and there's like his answer and he thinks, oh, there's my answer to my question. And then about another time, it's like going through the woods and, 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 and it's raining and he hears there's a church building nearby and there's people inside and they're singing. And so he goes inside and he's got this really good feeling because people are singing and he gets religion and all of a sudden that's how he's drawn to God because of this experience and this feeling and this circumstance that happens like so that's the way some people think how God draws you is by some circumstance or experience like that but this verse says that God draws you when you learn of him you're drawn through the word of God that's how he draws us so it's very important to understand the setting and the context we need to read all of what a bible says on a subject to get a full picture 
If we were to study a subject like the character of God, you can't learn all of that in one verse. If you wanted to learn about the Holy Spirit and how He works and understand Him, you can't just turn to one passage. That's a vast subject. So you really need to read all of what the Bible says on it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So if I want to learn about a subject and learn a full picture, or else I'm just going to have a partial view. Much like if you look through a peephole, you get to see that limited view. You open the door, your, your view is widened. Uh, if you just look at one passage, if you just turn to John 3.16, that's a wonderful verse. That does state something. But if you just stop there, you don't read the verses before and after it, and you don't read all of what God says on a subject. If you just read a verse that says, believe, that would be part of what God says, and it would be true. But it's not all of what God says about salvation. So you need to read all of it if you really want to know it. Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus said to Satan when he was tempted, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We need to know that every word of God is pure. Don't just read parts of it. And we need to observe what is not said if we want to understand it. You know, that, that's interesting in Galatians. In chapter 3 and verse 16, he's quoting an Old Testament verse about how God said that in, the, in Abraham's seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, Paul is commenting on that verse, and he says, he says not to seeds as of many. So he's observing what was not said. He did not say to seeds. He said to seed. And then he understands that to mean the, the lineage of Christ. So observe what is not said, even to the point of the plurality of the word. It, it's not plural. It's singular. In Leviticus chapter 10, in verse 1, we read of how that there were uh, two brothers who offered unauthorized fire, which the Lord commanded not. I don't know what, exactly what they did, but whatever they did... The Lord had not commanded them to do it the way they did it. So it's very important to observe what he did not say. And as we wrap that part up, look at one uh, uh, verse to illustrate this point. Hebrews chapter 7. I think, I think this will help us to help understand how the Hebrew writer interpreted the meaning of a passage on a subject. In Hebrews chapter 7, Notice in verse 1, he's talking about Melchizedek. Well, what he's doing is he's gathering all the information about this character. And you realize there's only two places in the Old Testament that Melchizedek is mentioned. One is in Genesis and one is in Psalms. What he does is he compiles all that information. Very few, very few verses that even talk about it. But he gathers all of that, gathers all the information. He looks at the terms, he defines the terms... He, he mentions that what Melchizedek means, it means king, king of righteousness. And he is a king of Salem, so that means uh, king of peace. Salem means peace, so king of peace. So he's defining the terms. 
But then in verse 3, he notices this man Melchizedek. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his father. We don't know his mother. We don't know his descent. And we don't know the ending of his life. So he, he says he has neither father nor mother or, and was out descent. So he's, he's observing what was not said about him. These are some very important principles to, to learn how to extract meaning from uh, passages. It's very important. And then one final point, and the lesson will be yours on this, is recognize when there's figurative and when there's literal language. When Jesus said, I am the door, he's not meaning he's a literal door. When Jesus is referred to as a, as a lamb and as a lion, I mean, obviously that's not literal. Those are descriptions. They're metaphors. They're figurative. A lot of the book of Revelation is figurative. They represent something. It was written in signs and symbols. Much of the poetry sections of the Old Testament, prophetic books are figurative in a lot of ways. There's some things that are figurative, some things that are literal. When Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they both shall fall in the ditch. Did he mean a literal ditch? Did he mean literally blind people? Well, okay, you understand it. If a literally blind person were to lead a literally blind person, well, they're probably going to stumble. But if that's true, he's now applying it to the spiritually blind someone who thinks they know and they really don't, and they're leading other people who are also unaware of what God's will fully is, well, then they're going to lead each other astray. Well, that's the point. And so it's very important to get that part right or we're going to mix up passages. I hope these things have been helpful to you. Ultimately, whenever we think about literal and figurative, we are literally immersed in water in order to contact the blood of Christ. Well, are we physically touching the blood of Christ or is it that we are spiritually putting on that pattern? Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again. And yet what we do is we're putting our old man to death. Not literally. It's not like we're literally killing ourselves, but we're putting our old desires to death. We're putting our spiritually we're putting our old man to death crucified with Christ we're buried with him in baptism when you are put under water you're raised to walk in newness of life and you're, you're forgiven of your sins I hope that makes sense if you haven't done that we invite you to do that if you're thinking about that and want to know more please talk to us and if I've said anything today that has clouded your understanding then I, I would like for you to uh, come talk to me and maybe we can help with that if you think I've misunderstood something come tell me it's, it's very possible but I hope this is helping us toward a better understanding as we're trying to figure out the authority of God what's right, what's wrong what are we allowed to do what are we not allowed to do and so forth and Lord willing we'll cover uh, more of that as we go but appreciate your attention will not you make your life right while we stand and as we sing.